book of John today. In that we're looking at our Father in Heaven and discussing Him, and certainly that is where our hearts need to be, uh, it is imperative, I think, that we spend a certain amount of time with John the Apostle, whether in the Apostle or the Epistle that he wrote here, or even in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, because John was, I think, a special individual in many respects. Love is the greatest thing, as Paul put it, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of the three is love. And love is interpreted many, many different ways in, among men and in society. But the true love of God that John understood, the right kind of love and how God defines it, is very important for us to comprehend and grasp. Now, John speaks of himself in more than one place as the one that Christ loved or was closer to than anyone else. Now, we can get offended here and there a little bit if somebody has a closer friend than maybe us or somebody else does. But Christ was closer to John than he was any of the other of the twelve. John was the one who actually leaned on his bosom. That in our culture here today uh, would raise eyebrows. And people have even used it to try to show that there was homosexuality there, which is utterly ridiculous and goes against everything the Bible says. But there was a closeness there, and the society at that time permitted men to uh, hug each other, to touch each other, without abnormality or perversion in ways that our American society does not allow. We, if we touch each other at all as men, it's usually a very quick bear hug with a pound on the back and turn loose, you know. Get away as quickly as you can because it's not culturally allowed. Nor are we comfortable with it because we did not grow up with that. I'm not really comfortable in Italy or uh, in Israel or other places like that where uh, Arab world. It's actually fairly common around the world for men to kiss each other on the cheek and this kind of thing. Uh, I hugged my dad, uh, but I didn't kiss him on the cheek after I got past age three, I suppose. I don't know. But there was a special relationship that Christ had with John. And you would have noticed that if a difficult question came up, as it did at the Passover time, that the other disciples asked John to approach Christ. They were a little hesitant, a little fearful. I don't know whether I can ask him that or not. You do it. Because they knew that he had an in that they did not have. So, was that sin? Was that wrong? No, it was not. Christ never sinned. So, for him to see the character, the personality of John which was very much in line with his own personality and that of his Father in heaven, was not wrong. And by emotion and feeling, he more easily lined up with John than he did the others. 
and probably spent more time with John in that sense and in a closer relationship than he did with the others. Did they get upset about it? Probably so. Did they argue among themselves who was the greatest? Undoubtedly so. And that's the way it was. They had to learn to deal with that. And Christ was willing to allow that to be. So, we need to be careful sometimes in our reactions with one another. I know every once in a while I hear somebody saying, well, they have that clique over there. Those people spend more time together. That's fine. It's okay to have more in common with or enjoy the company of certain ones more than you do others. It's only natural. Women who both enjoy cooking will probably spend more time talking together than one who loves to cook and one who abhors it. You know? There's something there they don't have much in common in. And that's just one example. And men the same way. We have different interests and different personalities, and it's okay if those mesh. Now, does that mean then that we spend all our time with those that we might enjoy more and no time with others? No, that's wrong too. Christ did spend a great deal of time with all twelve. He spent a little extra time, perhaps, with John, or John sat near him more often than the others did. That's just the way the relationship was because of personality and because of John's understanding of love. The Father and the Son are love. They define it. And he had that gift, I think, above any of the others, according to Scripture. And therefore, the greatest thing, love, is what we look to John for in the Scriptures. So, it is very important to consider when we want to understand our Father in heaven and His Son, to consider the words of John, who probably had the greatest gift of love of them. And love is the greatest gift. There are many gifts, but that was one where John particularly excelled. Now, whether he excelled in other areas, uh, and in all areas, probably not. As Paul put it, some have this gift, others have this gift, others have another was John perfect? No, not by any means. He had his flaws, he had his weaknesses, he had his sins, just like everyone else. But he understood more about the personality of the Father and the Son, I think, based on the Scriptures as they read, than anyone else in the group. And probably anyone that's lived since, I would assume that. So, his words are very important for us to consider. So, I want to pick it up here in John 1. And speaking of Christ here in this chapter, I'll not read the whole thing. We could, we could go through every word of the book of John and we could derive a great deal from it. But I want to hit the highlights except for one area. But it says that the word came unto his own in verse 11, and his own received him not. He was like an alien to them. He was born in a Jewish family. 
and went first to the Jews, but they didn't recognize him. Why? Because he was like his father in heaven. And he was therefore unrecognizable because these people who looked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob virtually worshipped them and thought they knew the Father did not have a clue what the Father really was or how he thought. Now that is a paradox, is it not? That you spend your entire life talking about your Father and about the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet did not understand them at all. Did not do as they did while they thought they were. Satan is a great deceiver, and we can deceive ourselves so very easily. And I think that the case in point here to consider is that we in Worldwide Church of God recognize that we had the truth, as we refer to it. And we thought that the physical leader had restored all truth because we thought he was the Elijah to come. And yet he did not restore all truth. Much has been learned since his death a quarter century ago, and the work which he did has been destroyed, essentially. Now, what was wrong? Something must have been wrong. And our perceptions must have been wrong. A certain amount of our understanding must have been wrong. And our attitudes and conduct must indeed have been wrong. Since we were scattered to the wind. Now God and His Son especially, given the office of Chief Shepherd is very, very cognizant of his flock. And he was very, very adamant in saying to the Father, I have only lost one of the flock you gave me, the little flock of twelve at the time, except Judas, and that was preordained, so it really wasn't his loss as such. So he is very, very concerned about the flock and wants to be sure that it is kept intact, if at all possible. Now, it must have been, then, that it was not possible to keep the end-time flock together. Why? What was so wrong that it could not be done? Now, you know it is the Father's will and the will of the Son that we all speak the same, be unified, be together, and one flock of God, as the church was for decades before it began to fall apart and be splintered and spewed out of the mouth of God. So something desperately went wrong, or that could not have happened. It was not the will of God that Israel sin and his son have to go through a divorce. God hates divorce. And yet, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it's inevitable. It became imperative that Christ divorce Israel. 
because she was not the wife she ought to be. So, it was not the will of God when that marriage was entered with ancient Israel that it ever be broken. But because of sin and transgression, the relationship was irreparably torn. Now, there can be various reasons that that happens. We'll not go into all that here. But the point is, God's will is not always done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is one reason he tells us, pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it rarely is. So it needs to be a major part of our prayer. Now, if we are to really know the Father, we will be way ahead of the Jews of Christ's time. If we are to really know the Father and His will and perform it, we must get way ahead of where we are, or were, when the church came apart. We obviously were not what we should be, and were spewed out, all of us, even those who claim that everyone was spewed but them. Because they are the only Philadelphians. Were they also broken? Were they also smaller? Are they also now losing membership over a period of time? Are they also still splitting? Yes, they are. Then something must still be amiss. And we are not above that. We must comprehend this. We have a great need to understand the Father. And John will give us a great deal of insight. So he came, and those who should have received him couldn't understand him at all. And the reason I emphasize this is that we, who think we know God, who think we understand God, need to be very careful in our thinking lest we become self-righteous, lest we become uh, self-satisfied to the point we do not need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God anymore because we must be okay. We're here. Warming a chair doesn't get it done. We all warm chairs in Worldwide and then the music started. And then suddenly there were no chairs. And no place to rest. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now the world rejected Christ, and the world today, even though some of them take his name, reject his teachings and his way of life. But for those who do receive him, along with his words, not just his name, he is willing to give power to have life eternal. Now, none of us want to die most of the time. We want to live. But we understand, and the older we get, the more we understand, that life is finite. That it is appointed to all men once to die. And God designed our bodies that they would start out pretty strong and grow to physical maturity. And then almost immediately begin to go downhill. 
And over time, they go downhill faster and faster until everything falls apart or downhill or something. And we finally are stooped and old and barely able to move and then die and are unable to think or move at all. So it's a process that we go through if we don't die young for some reason. We are to understand that life is very physical and it is very difficult. But there is something better ahead and that God will give us the power to live forevermore with good health, no worries, no pain, no tears, no frustrations. I can't even imagine it. I can read it and I can think about it, but I cannot yet imagine it. I don't know how to get my mind around that. We are so filled with these human things that it's beyond our grasp to understand what it would be like not to ever feel self-pity, frustration, discouragement, uh, loneliness, you name it. Anger, frustration with others, on and on and on the human emotions go. But we're there. We're human. Well, John had a pretty good grasp of dealing with human life because he understood the Father and the Son perhaps better in many ways than those around him. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, begotten is a better translation there. Those who are begotten of the Spirit and the above and the hereafter and the evermore, as opposed to those who are just living a physical life and don't know anything beyond that. The Word, Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God looked at man's history from Adam until Christ was born and realized that we needed more help than we had received to that point. We weren't cutting it as human beings, if you will. So he sent someone to live a perfect life to show us how and that the elements of that life could be recorded in prophecy ahead of time could be written during the time, and then after his death, could be written of in the rest of the New Testament as a witness for all of us so we might understand more about him and therefore more about the Father. And therefore, with the gift of the Holy Spirit to go with it, we might have a better chance of obtaining eternal life than those who had gone before us have. And very, very few are scheduled to be in the first resurrection before the early New Testament church began. Very few. After that time, the number increased dramatically in the early New Testament church. And then it pretty well, pretty well died out until the 1930s. And now it is dying out very rapidly again. And only a few 
for the most part, of the older generation whom he's dealing with now, understand. And this, this will all come to an end before that generation dies off. So it's got to be pretty quick. So, God is looking to you and me, our Father in heaven, to finish out the 144,000 to become the bride of Christ, never to be divorced, never to be frustrated, but to live together happily ever after in bliss and the wonder of being God. That's what we've been called to do. Is finish the job. It's a job that people have failed at generation after generation, thousand years after thousand years, until the apostles and Stephen in the early New Testament church showed it can be done. And we have that witness and that testimony, and we have the words of the apostle John, who was the closest to Christ to look to for guidance and help in getting the job done and finished right. And he's depending on us to do that. So he's given this, up, this opportunity. Verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ. Now, they, those people looked to Moses, <coughs> so John is pointing out, it didn't all come through Moses, but what we really need came through Christ. What Moses gave was good, uh, but there is a higher plane, there's a better understanding, there's a greater truth in that which Moses espoused to the people. Now, what Moses wrote is essentially still good and still valid, at least in terms of principle, if not in physical deeds of sacrifice and so on at the moment. Let's go to John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, dwelling within Him, unless we blow it. And he that believes not the Son of Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he is the way, the door, the only way to eternal life. And the, the Father has given that to him. So we are the precious sons that God has created on this earth in his image to become like him and to live forever in peace and happiness with him. That has been given and consigned to the Son to accomplish, to finish, and get the job done. Now, on his track record, he didn't lose any of the disciples except the one that was preordained to go. So he proved himself a success right from the very beginning. And he can be with us. In spite of our doubts, our fears, our laziness, our attitudes... If we call on the Father and the Son, He will get the job done through us. He said He will never leave us nor forsake us, ever. It is that we leave and forsake Him in His way. 
That's where the danger lies. Christ never erred. He never made a mistake. He never did the wrong thing in his marriage to ancient Israel. He was the perfect, literally perfect husband. It was human beings who failed in the relationship. That's our only danger. So if we start to fail, then we need to turn to him with all our heart in order to succeed. Now, we think it's difficult to turn to God with our whole heart, but isn't that really what John is beginning to say here? Your life is finite. It only lasts so long. If you want it extended, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to look somewhere to someone who is able to extend it. Now, human beings are trying to do that, aren't they? They're trying through the medical field and the drugs, pharmaceutical companies and so on, and science to extend our lives. And they even have aspirations of causing us to live forever in some form or another. To regenerate us, to grow new organs, to have us growing new organs from the DNA in our own bodies. So that, come on. They'll do anything to extend our mortal human life except live the way God wants us to. That's a sticking point. We want to do this ourselves. We want through our great, magnificent scientific minds to learn how to extend life forever, especially those that we like. They will not turn to God who says he can give it. And we have difficulty the same way, don't we? We say, the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's easy to say, I will do this, and then go out and do something different. Is it not? That's the way the human mind works. That's why we need to get close to God. See, we, we proposed... We vowed, we committed ourselves at baptism to live God's way, to to love Him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and then we got selfish and lazy. And we were not holding up our end of the bargain. And therefore, He scattered us like garbage in the wind or vomit out the mouth. So now he says, I want you to turn to me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul and to have the kind of love that John had. It's more than just emotion, as we shall see. It does include emotion, and it has to, but it isn't all just that. Chapter 5, verse 17. Christ answered them, My Father works here too, and I work. Now, doesn't he tell the end-time church in the prophecies, those who would be faithful to him, to work? He says, be of good courage, be strong, fear not, and work. If we are to be like the Father and like the Son, then, lo and behold, we have work to do. They say, works are not important. And yet he says, your reward is based on your works. We read, I think, last week. 
They work. So we must have something to work at. Learning to live God's way is a work in itself. And then doing the work of God is also important. Now, something the whole church needs to consider very deeply is what kind of work is God doing at a particular time? You can go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will find that the Father and the Son were doing different things at different times. There was a time when they were simply creating. There was a time when they were watching the sons of Adam until the Noatian flood to see what would happen. And they began to work with individuals such as Enoch and Noah and Abraham later. But those who seemed to have a heart and a mind to seek God and worked with them because there have been very few of those throughout history. So they've done different things at different times. There was a time Christ told the disciples to go out and preach. There was a time He told them Wait here till Pentecost. They weren't supposed to be preaching at all. Now, is there a time to speak and a time not to speak, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it? What would God have us do now? Are we fit to preach the gospel around the world as a witness? I think all the church needs to consider that. If we're still warring and fighting among ourselves, if we're still dividing and scattering and do not have the love and the unity and the closeness that God would have, then how are we somehow qualified to preach the gospel to the world? I ask. And the truth of the matter is, no part of the church of God today is qualified and or commissioned to preach the gospel around the world as a witness that the end might come. I know that goes against the grain with most of the church today because they think they are whichever group they're in. God stopped that with the death of Herbert Armstrong and the demise of the worldwide Church of God. He made it impossible for it to be done. There are those who think they are doing it, but they are falling far short of that. And they keep thinking, if we'll just print more and preach more, it'll happen. People are not being called, except a minuscule number, perhaps. The work is not flourishing. It is not growing anywhere in the church today. Recycling old members through the congregation in the front door and out the door is not growth, even if you're a good recycler. None of us are qualified today to preach the gospel around the world, or it would be happening the two witnesses will be given that commission. And when they die, the end will come. Herbert Armstrong was not the Elijah to come. 
He was not the Moses to come. He died in the end, did not come. There are people who think he was the Elijah who restored all truth. How much has been learned in the last quarter century? He didn't know it all. We find he had a basis and a foundation, but he certainly did not have all the truth by any means. And some of his doctrine has been proven to be totally in error. When will the church get off that and come to understand what work God is doing today? If you have found yourself as part of vomit, what, what do you do after you puke? You begin to clean it up, don't you? As soon as possible. Or get somebody else to if you're lucky. No, when you puke, the immediate job is clean up. Okay? If we were puked, then we need to be cleaning up. And that's what Herbert Armstrong said as he realized the church was about to fly apart and would when he died. He told me that. If I die, the church will probably come apart. And he did and it did. And he said, the job of preaching that he was to do was finished, get the church ready. And he was almost universally ignored. Get ready means get the puke off. It means get the vomit off. It means pull yourself together spiritually. Or get the church ready, as he put it. Because she was not ready to marry Christ. And that kind of bride, he spewed out. And now he's looking for those who will turn with their whole heart, mind, body, and soul. And as in the Song of Songs, get up immediately when the husband knocks on the door. Not lie there thinking she's comfortable with her teddy bear and her nightgown on but be ready to serve and give at a moment's notice. So we fell far short. And we need to understand, if he tells us work, what work he has in mind. The first job is to clean ourselves up. Then look around and see if there's a greater job that he has has for us once we are qualified, capable cleaned up enough to be his witnesses to the world that he is God. Now, maybe I'm getting a little away from the specific intent John had here when he wrote this, but I think we need to understand as we read the things about it. John says the Father works and the Son works. Well, then, if we're to be like them, we have to work. But then it leaves the door open. Everybody says, oh yeah, we'll work. We'll go preach the gospel. But that's not working and it's not happening. So therefore, is it within God's will at the moment for that to occur? Must not be. There was a time when the church was growing in leaps and bounds. People were being called just right and left. You couldn't keep up with it. God was blessing it. It was God's will that it happened. He was calling many. And it was working. 
It was happening very rapidly. And then it stopped. So then God must have had changed what he was doing. And yet men, having read Matthew 24, 14, thought that's what we, the work that must be done forevermore. And when God started doing something different and this didn't work anymore, men just kept going on like that was what he was doing. And it isn't. He's preparing a bride now and preparing a witness that he is God. And if we're to be a witness that God is God, then we need to be somewhat like God, wouldn't you think? So that is a work in itself. Well, the Jews didn't like that any more than the church would like what they would hear me say, were they listening today, or if they do at some point. They will not like it. It goes against what they think they should be working at. So it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, at least in their eyes, but also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Well, that is a major truth that the world takes exception to us with. We believe that we are to become God someday, as the Scriptures plainly state. They don't like that. Then answered Christ and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. And we have to recognize that of ourselves, we can do nothing either. And we need to be in line with the will of God if we expect anything to be accomplished. Be sure we're doing what He wants done. You realize even Christ Himself did not preach the gospel around the world as a witness? That was not the work that He came here to do. He sent the disciples out later to preach, to teach, to spread the gospel. To build the church. And then the church was destroyed. Basically disappeared. And the gospel wasn't preached for many, many centuries until the 1930s. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, let's take that statement. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. It goes right along with the line of logic that I'm using today. He shows the Son what He wants done and what He Himself is doing. Now, we as human beings do not need to take one or two verses, take them out of context perhaps, and say, this is what God is doing. If we are to understand at a time like we're in today, of confusion and frustration, splintering and scattering in the church, we need to what? Put our head down and just do a little harder what it is that was the last thought we had, and that's go preach the gospel. Or, if conditions have changed, and something is not working very well, is it time then to stick your head in this book 
and study it very, very carefully to find out if God might be doing something different than you thought. If we are doing what is within God's will, we should begin to see progress somewhere along the line. Should we not? We have to think about that. You have to look at it. I have to look at it. Can I see what I feel my commission is at the moment over the last years and see that anything has changed, that progress has been made, that some of the things that I came to understand 16, 17 years ago have begun to happen or not? I have to look at that. You have to look at your life. Everybody in the church ought to look at what they're doing and see if there is progress being made. Is it moving forward at whatever pace? Everyone needs to ask that question. Is there any success? If there's not, then maybe we should reconsider what it is that we're doing. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom He will. He can work through whomsoever He wishes. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's a big responsibility He's given to the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent Him. And we can go on through here. Let's see, I want to pick it up a little more here about uh, verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, what was the work he was sent to do? He was sent to live a perfect life. He accomplished it. He was sent to begin to train a ministry for the church. He got that done. He was scheduled to die that all men might have opportunity at life and not have to die for their own sins. He got that done. He finished, he accomplished all the things that the Father sent him here to do. And the Father himself, which has sent me, has, heard, has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. He does have shape. And you have, not his, uh, you have not His Word abiding in you, for whom, you, whom He has sent Him you believe not. Search the Scriptures. So if you don't know God, you don't know the Son in the way that you need to, and the relationship is not as strong as it ought to be, then search the Scriptures. That we need to be doing. Right now we have a project going where we want to prove whether something is true or not. And to most people on earth, the, su the subject that we're studying would appear bizarre in all caps and bold letters, indeed. Truly bizarre, strange, off the wall, out of left field. 
And yet we're having a mounting body of evidence that it is true. And I see no evidence mounting that it is not true. Now the scriptures will either underline, underscore, and prove one way or another whether this out of left field bizarre idea is true or untrue. And I've enlisted all of you to help prove this. Now, you don't want to believe anything that is weird, do you? I don't want to believe anything weird. I don't want to believe anything odd or strange or ungodly. I don't want to believe anything that is untrue. Do you? Now, I've been preaching off and on on the edges of this for some years now. And you're still here, and most of you are listening, and most of you are seeing the Scriptures quoted, and you can see that something is amiss. Something is not right about what people have known, they thought, and believed. Because certain things just don't seem to line up with the Scriptures. But are we being pulled into something that is truly wrong or bizarre, or is it right? Satan deceives the whole world. How greatly does he deceive the world? Everybody knows, is an attestation, that what everybody knows, therefore, must be of Satan. Think about that. He deceives the whole world. Therefore, what the whole world, or to use the term, everybody believes, is then wrong. Because they are all deceived. So the overall body of belief, most of things that people on this earth believe, do not come from God, but are straight from the devil. So, let us accept the challenge and prove truth from God's Word. That's the only thing we can depend upon, isn't it? It's the only dependable thing on earth. If we can't believe this Bible, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it's over. There's no sense in struggling and fighting to overcome, to grow, to change, to be different, To be like God when we are diametrically opposed to Him in almost everything that we think by nature. Why fight it if you can't depend on this word? I have heard it said that, well, the Catholics change nearly everything in there and you you can only take a few things out of there because it's all been garbled up and put in middle age dark age mysticism and magic been told that is that true I don't believe it for a second I believe there is a living God who has shape and form and life and a mind and I believe that he has called human beings 
to enter into His kingdom, to be changed into spirit beings like He is, and to rule the universe forevermore. And what evidence do I have of that? What this book says. And, as Romans 1.20 says, the creation around me. To look at and understand the marvelous works of a creator God who lives and breathes and exists because this didn't happen by chance. The birdie in the tree I was looking at this morning and trying in my limited knowledge to identify was designed by someone who knows what kind of bird it was and everything that's in it because he made it. So I believe in God. And I believe that since that God exists, He would be faithful enough to preserve a word that we can depend upon. If He could not have given us something that is dependable to be believed, then what kind of God is He? Notwithstanding a few translation errors here and there, an insertion or two, those can be ferreted out because they don't fit the rest of the book. And even the best translation we have is in ancient King James English from 1611, and languages change. So, even as I read it, I update it to more modern English and say you and them instead of ye and me and thee, and so on. That doesn't change the meaning. It just makes it more understandable to us because we don't say thee very often anymore. I mean in terms of you, not the bird. I believe this book is right. And therefore, if we are going to understand the truth of history, the truth of religion, this is where we go. We can depend upon it. Search the Scriptures. Then he told them, verse 42, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you'll receive... They're listening to men here, listening to men there. They won't accept Christ's words. How can you believe which receive honor one of another? You pat each other on the back and tell each other how wonderful you are and blow your trumpet as you put your pennies or your dollars or whatever in the offering plate. And seek not the honor that comes from God only. Pray secretly, fast secretly, don't brag. Just go to God and receive His strength and power and love and honor. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Now, he is a good elder brother. He does not accuse us to our Father. Now, we as children growing up together would often accuse each other of things to our father or our mother, that's just the way life was. 
If you could get them in trouble and you could get yourself out of trouble, that was the way to go. Christ is not that way. He doesn't accuse us. He says the one that accuses you is Moses. They look to Moses, not to Christ. Well, how did Moses accuse them? For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have prophecies of Christ. You don't normally think of those books as prophetic books, but they are. They spoke of he who would come. The whole Bible's prophecy. They didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe Christ either. They didn't really do the things Moses said. But if you believe not his writings, how will you believe my words? So he said, Moses really accuses you by the things he wrote. He wrote of me and you don't accept me. So he said, I don't need to accuse you before the Father. I won't do that. But your own ability to understand does. Now let's go to John 14. I want to skip on ahead. I had a couple others here, but... I want to address this body of Scripture and end up with it today. Now, we read John 14 through 17 at Passover as a tradition, and I think it is a very sound one because it is the things that Christ told and talked to the disciples about right after the Passover. And we read it without comment, without uh, any kind of expounding, because it is simply the words of Christ to his disciples, and probably the deepest, most meaningful uh, message that he ever gave them, speaking directly of the Father and of himself, and of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and us. I think it is fitting that at another time, we look at it at a time when we can expound a bit and comment on it. I don't like to at Passover service because I just want simply the words of Christ read and not let a human being get in the way. We might say something wrong, might put a wrong shade on it, might get led away in expounding from the main subject of what Christ was saying. So at Passover time, it's more formal, and I think that it needs to be just read word for word, and we get out of it as much meaning as we can at that particular moment. But when we're discussing here, honoring our Father, and the Son says He is just like the Father, so it's really honor to both. Where is my honor as a Father? I think this deepest passage in the Bible... It's where we will gain as much understanding as we can any other way of the relationship between us and our Father in Heaven and His Son. And how that relationship is supposed to work. What makes it succeed? What does He expect of us? How do we react to Him as a Father from a Son's standpoint? And what is His attitude toward us? This is an incredible teaching that Christ gave at that moment. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, it's easy to be troubled, isn't it? 
I said just a little earlier, can we depend on this word? Does this word mean more than what historians, preachers, archaeologists, and various ones, scientists, come up with? Now, if it's true, it will agree with this word. If it's a lie, if it's a fraud, if it's a misunderstanding, it will not agree with this word. So, we can be untroubled, can we not, if we know this word is inviolate. It's true. It can be depended upon. Therefore, as a basis of a study on the promised land, on Jerusalem, on Zion, on these various things that we've been looking at, this is the final authority. And we will find, I feel unequivocally, that... True archaeology and true history are going to fit this word. So let not your heart be troubled. Search this book and see what fits. If the Middle East doesn't fit, then it must be wrong. If it fits somewhere else, then that must be right. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The Father and the Son inspired this word. So we can clearly and with good conscience study this and accept what we see, even if it flies in the face of everything the world believes. Always remembering the world is deceived by Satan and that not just a few, but all the world is deceived except those few whom God has called out to understand. And give his spirit of understanding. What an incredible thing that is. That's so few. Most people pick up the Bible and they cannot understand a thing in it. You pick it up and you understand. Isn't that amazing? So don't be troubled. In my Father's house are many positions or mansions or places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's up there preparing the heavenly Jerusalem. Shows it coming down at the beginning of the millennium back in the end of the book of Revelation. And us with him when it does come. The bride is equivalent to that holy city, the 144,000, based upon 12 times 12 all the way through. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That should remove a lot of the trouble from our heart. Just that one statement. He is coming back. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is it not Jude that said we will ever be with the Lord? Wherever he goes, we will be with him. Once he comes back and claims us from this earth, we will never, ever be separated from him again. Always with him. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. He had just shown them the way to get there by the life that he lived. Exact, a perfect example of the way things ought to be. Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not where you go, and how can we know the way? They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. It wouldn't come until Pentecost. And they, they just didn't get it, did they? All the time of that 
most meaningful Passover and the change of the symbols and him becoming the bread and the wine, they didn't get it at all. They were sitting there worried about who was the most important through the whole thing. Didn't even comprehend what Judas was doing. Oh, he must be going... They were so out of it, they didn't even comprehend the time, the day, what was going on. It was all about themselves. And who's the most important? They were still utterly self-centered. They weren't hearing what he was saying. They'd remember it later. We don't know. How can we know? All right? We got a world out here that doesn't know the way either. How can they know? Emmanuel said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you want to know the answers to life, if you want to know what it's all about, you know how to succeed in life, you go to his words. You don't ask the world, what's the secret of life? You go to Christ, who has life in himself. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So you don't know the way? You've been living with me for three and a half years. That is the way. Do what I did. Live as I've lived. And you'll know the Father. That's why he says, 1 John 2, 6, Walk as he walked. To think as he thought. To bring every thought into the captivity of the mind of Christ. So that we think like he thought. Not the way we, in our minds, want to think as human beings. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough. If you just show us the Father, then we'll know, we'll understand, we'll get it. Emmanuel said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? He thought there was something great and mysterious that he hadn't seen yet. No. So just look at the way I've lived and you see how the Father lives. It's that simple. And we have this all written down as a record of how he lived and how he thought and what he did. It's not important to study the Bible just so you can get your Bible study in by rote. It's important to read this book so that you might understand the Father and the Son. So that you might come to think and act like them. That's why we need to read the Bible. That's why it's imperative that we search the Scriptures daily. Because we're not like Him and them. We get our thoughts confused sometimes, out of focus. Get them in here. If we're to have eternal life, then we need to be learning about those who inhabit eternity. Look around, he said. Here I am. He's just like me. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, He does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. you got a work to do. He said, believe me, 
Think about the things that I've said and the things that I've done. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now, he's saying here that the miracles he did, the things he did while he was on the earth, would be eclipsed by men who would follow him and be like him. That's incredible to consider. But didn't the disciples themselves later on, who were having trouble even comprehending Christianity at all, raise the dead, heal the sick, so that their shadow passing over would cause people to be healed? That was as great or greater works than Christ himself did while he was here, was it not? It was coming from the Father and the Son through those men, but they worked through them to do incredible works. And then they were killed. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If we go to him with the right authority, according to his will, he will do it. Now, there's always a stickler, always a contingency, always something that we must do. Now, he makes a very incredible statement there. Ask anything of me by my authority and it will happen. So it has to be in line with his thinking, according to his authority, that which he has authorized, and it will be done. Now, what does he say after that? If you love me, keep my commandments. That is what he has authorized. The way of life that he lives is the way of life that we must live. And if we live that kind of life, somewhere along the line, we will be... Enough like him in mind, attitude, and approach, and according to his way of thinking, that anything we ask will be done. The whole Christian world says the commandments of God are done away with, they're not in effect. We live by grace only. They are deceived. Now, these Jews thought they knew the Father, and they thought they knew Moses and Abraham. And Christ said, you don't know them at all. Is it possible to be so deceived that the God you think you worship and the fathers that you honor, you don't even know? Yes, it is. His word is truth. This word is what we have to depend upon. Now, you can go into Paul, and Paul wrote many things hard to be understood, as Peter himself put it. He said, I have trouble understanding Paul. Okay? So, let me put it this way. Paul is not the final authority. I say that tongue-in-cheek because God 
inspired Paul to write what Paul wrote. And it is the Word of God. And there is no difference between Pauline theology, as they call it, and God's theology. What Paul wrote is absolutely right, and God included it in Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that since Paul wrote things so that they might be snared and taken and deceived, even as Christ spoke in such a way that they might be taken and snared and deceived, God allowed Paul to write that way too. And boy, have they by it. So when even Peter the Apostle says, I have trouble understanding Paul, then grasp that some of the things Paul wrote are not easy to understand and can be easily twisted and perverted to a wrong way of thinking. But when Christ was teaching these disciples who were to go out and preach the Father and the Son and the true gospel, He did not mince words. He did not speak in parables. He did not allow them to be taken and snared and deceived in any way. He spoke very simply very directly, and told them exactly how it is. This is not a translation problem. This is not a, I'm an intellectual, I write in such a way problem. This is very simple, very direct. So somebody tries to take you to Paul and say, well, Paul says this. Well, that's fine. Paul did say that. What did Paul mean? We can debate that for a long, long time. But you can't debate this. It's clear. If you love me, keep my commandments. Is there any more thing more important than loving him? Now, here you begin to get an inkling of the understanding that the Apostle John had of the Father and the Son. He is the one that even the world says is the Apostle of love. Okay? If anybody can explain love in the Bible, it's got to be John. That's all, that's the main thing he writes about all the way through this epistle in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So if you want to understand the love of God, listen to John. And when he says, you can do anything in my name and authority, or say it, and it will be done. Incredible. But keep the commandments. You have to live a certain way if that is ever going to happen. We want healings. We want blessings. Well, duh. What are we doing about it? Are we completely within the will of God? It's easy for us to criticize each other, or it's easy for us to get discouraged and say, well, why doesn't this happen? Why doesn't that happen? Right here. It tells you why. It tells you that if you will do everything that God says to do, then you can do miracles beyond what Christ himself did. Well, obviously, we've fallen short then. It isn't God in heaven's fault that we're not raising the dead. It's our fault. Isn't that simple? 
Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? No, because these disciples were not. Paul raised the dead. Eutychus, remember, fell out of the balcony, bam, deader than a doornail. Raised him right up. Happened. Was Paul perfect? He considered himself the chiefest of sinners. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. He realized that as a human being, he had faults and weaknesses and sins and problems, but he was working hard to overcome them and change them and be what he ought to be. And God used him in spite of himself, didn't he? Because he never attained to the perfection of Christ, nor did Peter, James, John, Jude, or any of the others. But they got enough in line with God's will and God's way that God used them anyway. So, even if we fall somewhat short, God says, in spite of yourself, I can use you. But you've got to be headed the right direction. You've got to be growing. You've got to be changing. You have to be pushing to be like God. And then some of these things will begin to happen. So he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So he's saying here, the commandment keeping and the love of God are one and the same. They're part and parcel. They cannot be separated. Commandment keeping is required to love God. And the degree to which we commandment keep the commandments shows how much we love Him because that's His way of life. It's His way of thinking. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father... And he shall give you another comforter that you may abide, that he may abide with you or it may abide with you forever. So he says, I'm leaving, but I will send the Holy Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees it not, neither knows it, but you know it. For it dwells with you and shall be in you. So God had given his Spirit to be with them, to have a mind and attitude to be with Christ. <coughs> but it's going to be combined with your heart and mind, come Pentecost. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So he's saying, keep my commandments. Things will go better for you. I will send you help. And when you fail, you lack, you're weak, come to me and I'll give you the strength to do what you need to do. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more. But you see me, because I live, you shall live also. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments, comes right back to that theme, and keeps them, not just believes it or puts it on his doorpost and says, I, the commandments are nice, let's put them here and we can see them if we want. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So the way to build a relationship with God so that he will come to you and he will want you and desire to be with you and near you is to keep his commandments. To love him with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the commandments. 
There are many ramifications of that, but that, in essence, is what it's all about. And how do we think that we can just love God and then treat our neighbors shabbily or negatively? Do we not realize that we are not supposed to listen to the negative? Who's negative? Satan is the great negative. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who wants to see us fail. He lives in, he lives deliciously in negativity, in accusation. He goes before the Father in heaven and accuses you and me on a regular basis. Now, if we accuse one another, if we are negative about one another, if we put one another down in a serious way, we are not keeping the commandments of God and we are serving Satan. Now, there are many scriptures, and I don't have time to preach a sermon on it today, but there are many scriptures which indicate we are not to be around anyone who is angry, anyone who is negative, anyone who is putting down. It says to stay away from them. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how powerful a personality they are. I don't care how persuading they may be. If they have a negative approach, stay away. God says to have nothing to do with the angry, the negative man. Do you believe him? Do you allow people to talk negative around you? If you do, you are not keeping the commandments. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. You are allowing people to be trashed. You are allowing their personality, their spirituality to be demeaned. You are allowing their character to be assassinated. You are allowing rumor and hearsay to be promoted. And you are being like Satan yourself. It is just about as wrong to listen to negativity as it is to say it. It takes two to tangle. It takes a speaker and a listener. Does it not? Anyone who preaches negativity and put down and division will shut up unless someone lends an ear. If there's no audience, pretty soon you quit talking to yourself. Don't you? So you are just as much a participant when negativity starts in sin as the one who is doing the talking. There's a giver and a receiver. Okay? Now, there's been some of that around this congregation. 
And I have tried to be very patient. I have tried to be as merciful as possible. I have tried to ignore it and hope people would grow up and tell them to shut up and quit listening to it. And I hope we're mature enough that we can do that. And if we're not, I hope we grow quickly. Because with certain negative elements, my patience is growing very, very short. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Judah said to him, verse 22, the other one, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Why do you come to us and not to the rest of the world? We could say the same, could we not? Emmanuel answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. As I said, the keeping of commandments is first of all to God, loving Him with all our heart, and then loving our brother as much as we love ourselves. I doubt if there's a person in this room or listening over this telephone who loves to hear negative things said about him who just can't wait to hear the latest juicy gossip about himself. Do I have any strange animal that loves to hear stuff like that? We don't mind hearing it about somebody else. In fact, we'll spread it, won't we? Just boom, like that. But we don't like to hear it about ourselves. Well, now, if we don't like to hear it about ourselves, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, then we're not going to... Indulge in it, nor will we listen to anyone else who decides to indulge in it, now will we? That is the very foundation, the very basis, the bedrock of any kind of true Christianity. All the understanding of Paul or any of the other scriptures that might be hard to understand and how intellectual and esoteric we might become. And how many scriptures we can quote. Unless we love our neighbor as ourselves and won't say anything about them that we would not say about ourselves, then we don't understand Christianity at all. That is the basis, bedrock foundation of Christianity. And if we don't get that, there's no sense in moving forward whatsoever. Because our eternal judgment is based upon how we treat our neighbor and how we treat our Father in heaven. And where we show mercy and forgiveness... It will be shown us. And if we do not, it will be denied us. He who puts down and is negative toward and gossips about and assassinates the character of any brother 
will be assassinated and go into the lake of fire. Now, can I get it any clearer than that? The love of God is keep the commandments. The commandments are summarized as love the Father and treat your neighbor as yourself. I think that's a good place to quit. I don't think of anything else I could say that's any clearer than that. So let's stop for today.